Welcome to Untangling Christianity. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, consider love and truth in Christianity. We hope you'll come along for the conversation, and you can be part of that conversation by leaving comments at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 75. We also invite you to join our private Facebook group. To receive an invitation, send an email to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com and tell us your biggest need or problem when it comes to Christianity. We'll get an invitation right out to you. I'm John Polstra. And I'm Greg Monteith. And today continues our discussion about the covenant or promise that God made to Noah and Abraham and who knows where this will all go. It all started a few weeks ago when I brought a pamphlet from a Christmas program that I had attended that laid out the gospel in a very succinct and straightforward manner. I believe that was episode number 73. Mm-hmm. So if you want to listen to these in order and catch up to us, that would be a good way to do it. So well, I think last week I showed up and said, okay, I've been talking about this covenant or this promise. Where does this come from? Where are you getting it? Mm-hmm. Put this together for me. And in some ways, help, you know, what is what is you, Greg? What is your presentation of the gospel? Like, where would you start? How would you present it to me in a way that you understand it? And it's probably going to be different than the way that I've understood in the past. So a lot of discussion last time about the covenant, where it came from. I think talking to you during the week, that caused you to do a whole bunch more work on different areas. So maybe update us there and where do you see that we should go today? It's interesting because the discussion about the covenant, yeah, came out of the pamphlets that we were looking at that you had, you know, picked up from the Christmas events you attended just in December there. And um, it was really interesting to me that as I began to research more about the covenant, and um, I want to highlight a couple of things. First of all, I had some questions about the solidity of the presentation I was offering in one specific regard, and that is how much of that promise to Abraham is included as an eventual covenant blessing. And I'm still, the jury is still what do you a little... Mean by, what's a, what do you mean by covenant blessing? So the covenant comes with a series of curses and blessings, or we, we might say, you know, benefits and consequences, or the other way around, consequences and blessings, uh, consequences and uh, benefits, right? And so following through on the covenant means that Israel receives those benefits or blessings. Not following through will involve Israel receiving those uh, consequences or curses, if you like. And so what I had, the question I have and and um, I've actually answered it in two different ways, which is why I thought, yeah, you know, I think I have to be, I have to come down on, on this one way or the other and be a little more definitive. But at one point, my initial response was the promise was succinct and different from the covenant blessings. And then last time I, I kind of put them in there, you know, talked about creating a, a making a covenant on the same very same subject that you had you had already made a promise about and wait so are you saying they're different i've been kind of lumping them together covenant equals promise you're saying there's a difference 
Well, there's definitely a difference. I'm wondering what the overlap is. That, that's my question. Oh, okay. And, and last time I had kind of put them together and said, you know, God called Abraham. And, and, and I think the other thing that I would say to, to last time, I know that you had said, hey, you know, I don't really... <laughs> I was pushing you. <laughs> yeah, you were, which is good. Which is good. You said, you know, if it's not really an if you do this, I will do that. And I, I think I think I would say that we also want to look a little bit more deeply into the kind of uh, the cultural norms of the ancient Near East. I would be hard pressed to imagine a situation between an ancient Near Eastern individual or people group and a, a divinity or so-called divinity uh, where the divinity says, do this and such and such and such and such and such and such, and such after it. You know, as a kind of as a, as following sentences or you know what a knock on kind of next steps, I would have it be hard pressed to think in that scenario with that type of culture that it wouldn't be seen as if you do X, you will receive Y. No, that X just is something to do, and Y is a benefit. Well, and that just occurred to me. I wonder too if. So is what you're saying in that time when a divinity told you to do something, you just did it. Whereas I feel like in today's day and age, it's kind of like, well, you know, people say, well, God commands everyone to do whatever, you know, do thus and such. Mm -hmm. And people are like, well, I don't know. Did he really? Mm -hmm. Does God even exist? Eh, whatever. But it sounds Mm -hmm. like, is it, would it be true to say that in that time when a divinity said to do something, you just did it? Well, I, no? I, I think I think what I'm getting at is th- this isn't just a sort of do this, and whether you do it or not, I'm going to bless you and make you a great nation and bless all the nations of the earth through you. I, I think they would see that as a very sort of, if you do X, you will receive Y. But the other interesting part is, I, I, I don't know, like the, the text doesn't talk about how many people did God actually approach who, who maybe God approached other people before Abraham and they said no. Or they said yes and didn't do it, you know. So I guess, like, I hear what you're saying. I'm sure there's the implication that divinity approaches you and you just do it. But there are a lot of instances where God is approaching people, even people who are reputed, purportedly, purportedly under sort of covenant relationship with God. And God's reminding them of that. Hey, you made a deal with me. Here's the deal. Follow through. And they don't. You know, and God's not forcing them to follow through. So what were some of your... In all this extra work that you did, what were some of your, what were some of your big insights, and what what is the logical conclusion of those insights to people that are starting to think, come on, guys, you're going to spend a whole episode talking about promise versus covenant versus like why does this even matter? <laughs> sure. Well, I guess I would say that at this point, having really combed through the the, the Pentateuch, so the first five books of the Bible, the Hebrew Bible. I don't think, on the one hand, that the promise is included as a covenant blessing, although the the promise, the effect of the promise, in other words, that Israel would be a blessing to all the nations and that all the nations would be included, that comes up a lot. It's coming up in Isaiah. It's particularly in Isaiah. But um, I'm just writing down actually two more occurrences that are in my mind. But but the interesting thing too is that we began this discussion talking about mystery, right? Oh yes, and, that was the title of it. 
Okay. So I found a very interesting article. Um, I'd highly recommend Google Scholar. So it's, I think it's www.google.com forward slash scholar, something like that. And I typed in the, I was really trying to find out a little bit more about the promise. And so that's Genesis, the one I'm referring to here is Genesis 12 verses 1 to 3. I typed that in. And I pulled up an article, very interestingly, on Ephesians. And you might think, oh, what's the tie-in here? Well, there is a tie-in, and uh, it's Ephesians 3, but it also ties us in with this idea of mystery. So it's bringing these things together. And I thought this was fascinating. So I'm just going to read you Genesis. This is, I'm, this is all out of the NRSV. This is Genesis 12, 1 to 3, and then I'm going to flip into Ephesians and, and talk just a little, a little bit about this, this mystery idea. Because on the, on the other hand, when we began talking two episodes ago, we kind of uh, really, I mean, I, I, I'll, ta- I'll, I'll take that on. I really pushed back hard against this idea of mystery. And I want to cut back a little bit against that, but not, a, not I think, in the direction that the, these, these authors that we had been looking at who had raised this idea of mystery, not in the direction that they're taking it in, but in a different direction. How, how does that sound? That sounds good. And for background for maybe people that haven't listened to us a lot before, I have been very critical in the past of mystery as kind of an escape hatch that people in Christianity use when they can't explain something or it's too complicated. They'll just kind of like, well, it's a mystery. We can't understand that. We're just humans. And then you're supposed Mm -hmm. to just say, oh, okay, and move on. And so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that was kind of the trigger point for me. And yeah, so if you want to know more on that, the, the, what what we were referring to in Mystery Episode 73 will kind of bring you up to speed. So carry on. So let me read Genesis 12, 1 to 3. And I'm going to flip into Ephesians. And we'll just read the first, I don't know, six verses of, of uh, chapter 3. This is Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and make your great your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I'm going to actually, before I skip to Genesis, I'm going to read a couple more things, uh, to Ephesians. I'm going to read a couple more things in, in Genesis, and it's actually, it's a reiteration of this same promise, if you like, this same kind of phraseology. Because what we get and this 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 made me think about trying to mind map this whole thing. I know we talked earlier about mind mapping the trajectory of some of these themes in the Bible. And I'm I'm really getting pretty stoked on this idea of mind mapping this. Because we go from Genesis 12, where God calls Abram, says, you know, go and do this thing. And such shall be the case. You know, you will be a great nation. You will be uh, a blessing to um, through you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed, etc. And then there's a Genesis 15, and there's the beginning of a covenant, right? There's the, the traditional kind of covenant ceremony of cutting things apart, cutting animals apart, a very kind of uh, telltale way of making a, a, a binding bargain in the ancient Near East. And then in, we go on to Genesis 17. And there are more stipulations and more, more information. It's much clearer what's involved in this covenant. And then we get into Genesis 18. And this is just where uh, God is, is going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's a very interesting couple of verses here. 
So it's Genesis 18, 16 to 18. Then the men set out from there. These are two men, men apparently, but, but not because it's God, who had come to visit Abraham. They set out from there and they looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them and set out and set them on their way. The Lord said, as though talking, as though speaking, God is speaking to God's self, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? seeing that Abraham shall become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. No, for I have chosen him, that he may charge his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring about for Abraham what he has promised. If we go a little bit further, I'm just going to read a couple more. There are a couple more of these instances in Genesis where this, this comes up again. Right, this kind of promise is reiterated. After you know, we've talked about the akeda, which is the uh, the Hebrew word for the the call of Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, and I know we talked about that back episodes early sixties someplace. But when we when we talked about it, we didn't go a few verses further, and this is really interesting because you go a, f- a few verses further after the angel of the Lord says, you know, stop. Don't do this. Verses 15 to 19 in Genesis 22. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this and not withheld your son, your only son, I will bless you and I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gates of their enemy. And by your offspring shall all the nations of the earth gain blessing for themselves, because you have obeyed my voice. I guess what I'm trying to do on the one hand is to say, this is a thematic notion in Genesis. When we're talking about Abraham, this idea of promise is really dominant. And this idea that Abraham is going to be a blessing to all the earth. But when we move forward into Exodus, I'm not going to go through Exodus, you know, Leviticus, Deuteronomy particularly. We don't see this specific promise reiterated when we're talking about the covenant. Whether it was the initial kind of contact at, at Horeb, where the Israelites really messed up, or at Sinai, where they had some problems again. And Sinai, of course, is the big covenant with Moses. It's not reiterated. Then it comes up again in the prophets. You see it a lot in Isaiah, Isaiah 2, 25, 42, 49, uh, Isaiah 19. There are some other references. And I'm going to skip ahead to Ephesians and also Galatians. I'm going to try to tie these two in, okay? Uh, I didn't mention Galatians before, but we'll read that too. Oh yeah, this is really interesting. I'd I'd actually like to read a a little bit of a larger chunk if that works for you, because we talked, we finished last time with this idea of what's the relationship between us and Abraham, and I basically said none. (laughs) Right. You know, and you were kind of like, why, what are you talking about? And I talked about this distance, you know, we are, we are, we are not the, the Israelites. We are, I'm not Jewish. I've got no Jewish blood in me. And it was this process. In other words, we need to bear in mind that the link that we have with Abraham is a link of faith. And this is the interesting thing that Paul's doing with his theology and saying it was faith that Abraham, upon which Abraham agreed and went forward, did as God said. And then, you know, through stumbling and bumbling, nevertheless, maintained that faith, grew that faith. And that faith is what is common to us in Abraham. And of course, that faith means something because of the life Jesus lived, because of the death Jesus died. That's the connection. 
So I want to come back, come forward here, and I'll just read um, in Ephesians. I'm going to start. That is really it. The faith, so faith is the link. Faith is the link. It's not. It's not about. Uh, not, and bear bear in mind, right? When we're talking faith, Abraham, you know, it's not like believe in me. It's yeah, because Abraham this. wasn't perfect there either, was he? No, he, he messed <laughs> up a lot. But there's always action involved, right? And even in the New Testament, when you got to bear in mind too, the Gospels are Jesus talking to the Jews. It is not Jesus talking to the Gentiles. There are some rare exceptions, right? And typically, they're, they're exceptional exceptions. There's the centurion. There's the Syrophoenician woman. There are these examples of, of what? Of extraordinary faith. Not in all of Israel have I seen faith like this. Wow. This is to, this is to be emulated. In other words, hey, you Jews, look here. Look at this Roman. Look at the Syrophoenician. These are people to emulate. Why? Because they're doing what you should be doing. They're acting as you should be acting. So let me just try to draw this together here, or at least paint the picture first before I try to draw it together. Okay. Ephesians 2, 11, and I'm going to read a good 20 verses here, okay? This is Paul writing to the Ephesians. So then, remember that at one time, you Gentiles, by birth, he's writing to Gentiles, obviously, called, quote, the uncircumcised, or uncircumcision, by those who are called, quote, the circumcision, a physical circumcision made in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were at that time without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. In his flesh, he has made both groups into one and has broken down the dividing wall. That is the hostility between us. He has abolished the law with its commandments and ordinances that he might create in himself one new humanity in place of two, right? Jews and everybody else. All of a sudden, we've got no division. One new humanity in the place of two, thus making peace and might reconcile both groups to God in one body through the cross, thus putting to death the hostility through it. So he came and proclaimed peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, both of us have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are citizens with the saints and also members of the household of God, built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole structure is joined together and grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are you also are built together spiritually into a dwelling place for God. So you can see this, this kind of really radically distinct two groups, Jews and everybody else, Jews being close to God, those who are near, us, the Gentiles, being those who are far, and that we have both, in a sense, been, there's peace now between us and peace from us jointly to God. This is, and then Paul goes on, and this is the beginning of chapter 3 in Ephesians. This is the reason that I, Paul, am a prisoner for Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles. For surely you have already heard of the commission of God's grace that was given me for you, and how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I wrote about, as I wrote above in a few words. And this is the above that I read to you, a reading of which will enable you to perceive my understanding of the mystery of Christ. In former generations, this mystery was not made known to humankind, 
as it had been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. That is, the Gentiles have become fellow heirs, members of the same body, and sharers in the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. That is the mystery. That is when we're talking about mystery. We're not talking about love. We're not talking about the fact that the Gentiles were going to be brought in, but that there is no division whatsoever. The point of this whole idea of mystery, and when you go back, there are some other references to mystery. Romans 11 is another one. And Say that one more time. So the, the, what, the, what exactly the mystery is? The mystery is the fact that through Jesus, the end result is not only are the Gentiles included, not only are all the nations blessed. We, we, we knew that back way back in Genesis 12 and then reiterated in Genesis 18 and 21, etc., right, that I've just read. But there is now no division. There's no sense of difference between the two. There's no priority. There's no hierarchy. Now, this was, is nowhere, seemingly, right? This is completely uh, unexpected, if you like. And this is the mystery that Paul says, you know, this wasn't, that this was not made known, that this should happen like this. And this, of course, comes in with some of these great, great formulations, like in Galatians, there is this, I mean, this is some of the most exciting stuff, I think, in terms of ethics in, in, the, in the Bible. There, you know, I'm reading from Genesis, pardon me, Galatians uh, 3.28, and it, it's again, it's also in Colossians 3.11. There is no longer Jew or Greek, there is no longer slave or free, there is no longer male and female for all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And this is, this is the cool part. Listen, what's, what's the next verse? And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Right? So we're seeing this. You're all there. You're all part of it. But there was never a sense that the Gentiles were going to be equal with the Jews. I mean, the Jews are God's chosen people. You know, they're the ones. And yet, no, that, that's not what's happening. That is not the point. That is not the trajectory. That is not the intention. That is not what God is aiming at. And that's the mystery, that this wasn't revealed. This wasn't made known. And yet, this is what's taken place. And how? Through Christ, through Jesus, through the life he lived, the death he died. Now, if we go back in that same chapter a little bit earlier, here I'm, now I'm in Galatians now, right? I just read that there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female. But if you go back a little earlier in the same chapter, um, I'm going to start with verse 6 and just read down. Just as Abraham, and this is a quotation, believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, end quotation. So you, and he's writing to the Galatians, those who believe are the descendants of Abraham. So faith, faith is that characteristic which allows us to be members of this family and places us in right relationship with God. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, declared the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, quote, all the Gentiles shall be blessed in you, end quote. For this reason, those who believe are blessed with Abraham, who believed. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, quote, cursed is everyone who does not observe and obey all the things written in the book of the law, end quote. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for, quote, the one who is righteous will live by faith, end quote. And this is Paul quoting sections of the Old Testament. But the law does not rest on faith. On the contrary, quote, whoever does the works of the law will live by them, end quote. And this is the important part to try us back in. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, 
Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, in order that in Christ the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. So Paul's putting all this stuff together, and he's saying a long time ago there was a promise made, but nobody understood this is a mystery. Nobody understood that it meant not just that, you know, you guys could tag along, but all you Gentiles, you are every bit as important. You are every bit as central. You are every bit as loved and sought after as the Jews. How would they have understood faith? Because when I hear faith, I'm, I'm curious how they would understand it, how you understand it. Like, you know, in my tradition, faith was kind of this close your eyes and, and jump off the ledge, which didn't work very well for me because I tried to do that and I thought I was having faith, but, you know, the other things didn't come. So what what does that mean? Well, I think it, <clears throat> I don't think you ever see it divorced from action. You know, Abraham acted in faith. You see, I mean, even so it's when you not think a about, mental. So it, it's not a mental ascent. Well, it is, and it's more. You know, and if somebody had to, if, if I were pushed and somebody said, listen, there's a moment where somebody hears about the gospel and blah, 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 and, 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 and they have a moment to decide and then they're going to die. So they have no time to, if you like, act or enact their faith. I would say is understanding it and assenting to it mentally and believing in it, if you like, grabbing hold of it as, as a, a willingness to assent to it as truth or you see this is a tricky thing though john I, i'm backing out already from what i was about to say i would say <laughs> yes on the one hand but the problem is it's a stepwise process it's never just somebody telling you something and you go oh yeah that makes a lot of sense you know there's there's in other words i'm not going to tell somebody about the christian gospel if you like if for them the idea of a divinity is completely nonsensical and foreign i mean the first thing you've got to talk about is well what's what's a god what would that look like you know, and so I think there's a there's a progression that where we're moving through, you know, belief, understanding, trusting, right? Believing on a on a very basic level that, that God can exist, that something about the story can make sense. And then understanding enough about that story to see how there's a link between who we are as people living now here in the world and the story itself and this God that's presented in it, however many, you know thousands of years ago. And then a point of really kind of embracing that, seeing the significance of that, seeing the outworking, let's say, of, yeah, some of the logic of the, of the text when it's talking about self-deception, when it's talking about the need for forgiveness, when it's talking about all of these various virtues and vices that uh, depict what it means to be a human being and realizing, yeah, this, is, this, this text has a really good sense of what human beings are. Maybe that's worth it for me to look a little further about this idea of God and what might this relationship, what kind of relationship is this text depicting? But I guess it's a very long involved process, right? It seems to me, and sometimes, or maybe maybe quite often, when people's religious beliefs or their quote unquote faith founders, when it breaks apart, I wonder if part of that, or usually if that uh, comes about because certain sections of that process were really skimmed over. They weren't solidified. 
You know, I really don't have a sense of the distinction between God and me. I really don't have a sense of what the biblical text is telling me about what human beings are like. Well, that's what's really helping me in this process. Like, as we're doing this, yeah, there, I just feel the sense of like, oh, okay. Yeah, as we start at the beginning, like going all the way back, that mm. I feel like things are making more sense in a in a solidified way than they have in the past. Because, again, the past presentation was what we saw in this pamphlet was, we're sinful, Jesus came to die for our sins. Isn't it great that he was born? Isn't it even better that he was willing to die for us? Now we can go to heaven. Mm-hmm. This is totally different. Yeah. Well, I mean, I know, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, that, that whole presentation is kind of like, I guess, on parallel to what I'm saying about the, the whole notion of belief and that belief is a much more protracted process in terms of, you know, believe this, et cetera. The Jews didn't have to do the steps we have to do now. Like the people in the New Testament, the people in the Gospels that Jesus is speaking to, the Jews, they, they have, they've got no issues understanding who God is. They, they've got a big issue believing that Jesus <laughs> might be God, right? That, that's their big issue. And that's a huge issue. They are giving up their act of believing, of saying, I see you are a representative of God. And in fact, you know, you are claiming to be God. And I see you're putting together my scriptures, which are the, is the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. You're putting that together in a very interesting way. None of my teachers have put that together for me in that way, but I see how what you're saying makes sense. Like that's a big, long process. And I don't think all of them went through all those steps. For a lot of them, it was seeing something astoundingly miraculous or having this ongoing exposure to Jesus. You know, when, when, uh, uh, I'm not sure where in the gospels it is, um, where Jesus is saying, you know, who do people say that I am? And, you know, people, you know, the, the, disciples answer with various answers and you know who do you who do you say that i am and uh um peter answers with this you know astoundingly definitive you know you are the son of god and that's that's enormous right that's an enormous admission for him to make i'm looking up i'm looking it up right now trying to see if i can lay my fingers lay my hands on it but i don't seem to be able to comment by peter but nevertheless well i'm really glad that this is making sense you know and it's it's so i i think this whole idea of mystery you know again we're seeing this kind of tie-in right we're going back to the promise well it's like you were saying i think in 73 you know the right kind of mystery (laughs) yeah (laughs) but i think we so it's like okay if you want to define mystery this way wow i'm that makes sense but to yeah. just wave a wand and just say, ah, oh, that's a mystery. It's yeah. mysterious. Well, yeah, some things are and some things maybe aren't meant to be. Yeah, but I don't think at that point in 73, I guess what I'm feeling now or thinking now is I have a better sense of where these people might be coming from. Uh, and yet when I read, uh, you know, these references in Ephesians 3 and even even in Romans, uh, I think it's a R- Romans eleven twenty five, and I'll read it to you. It's very it's very clearly tied in with exactly what's being said in that Ephesians passage. Romans eleven twenty five. 25, it's one verse, but uh, so that you may not claim to be wiser than you are, brothers and sisters. He's writing to, I think he's writing, I think he's referring to the Romans that saying brothers and sisters. I want you to understand this mystery. A hardening has come upon part of Israel until the full number of Gentiles has come in. 
And this is Paul in Romans bemoaning the fact and really mourning the fact that his, his, his countrymen have by and large disregarded and rejected Jesus as a troublemaker, a rabble rouser, certainly not you know, a good Jew, certainly not the Messiah, certainly not the Son of God. And again, this mystery of the, the, the Jews on the one hand being excluded until the Gentiles have come in, but yet it's, it's enlarged, if you like, in Ephesians with this idea that, well, it's not just they're, they're coming in, it's that there is a complete equality. That equality that we see through that, that wonderful formulation in Galatians 3, 28, and in Colossians 3, 11. So I guess what I... I've kind of seen with this and wanted to highlight was that the promise is separate, right? It's, uh, I don't see that as being part of the actual covenant when I'm looking through Deuteronomy, when I'm looking through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, it's not there. It's not part of the, the if you like, the covenant blessings. And so I think the process that I outlined last time was a little bit incorrect. You know, I know we've had a, we've, we've chatted about this before, but I just wanted to make a meta comment too, which is, in past, it's been more difficult for me to say, oh, gee, oh, made a mistake on that one. You know, not that I'm supposed to be perfect, but I just, I feel badly. But it's just been inspiring, actually, this time to go through and, and think, oh, wow, well, let's look at this and let's see how this all works together. And realizing that it's, it is quite complicated. It's quite complex. And when Paul's talking about mystery, I mean, this is somebody who is thoroughly uh, just steeped in these texts. He knows them inside and out. And he's, he's astounded by some of the things he's seeing. And I guess the, the corollary for me there is we've talked before about rigor. And I think rigor is always paired with, you know, grace, allowing yourself to be somebody who's on the way, right? And I have to allow myself that possibility too. I'm on the way with this stuff. Not sure what to add to that. <laughs> sounded, sounded like a good ending let me just mention a couple of the things in 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 isaiah because i think that these are really important um and how do are, these tie in well these are the references and they're powerful references to the whole earth coming in and it's interesting i guess i guess these these come in because i don't know the answer to this and i would love to have some feedback and, uh, you know, my main source here is N.T. Wright, but my N.T. Wright books are all in boxes in the garage. <laughs> but so I guess my question is, just to be as clear as, as possible, how do we see the relationship between the covenant and the prophetic voices that come after and, and are not only kind of pointing the figure in Israel and saying, hey, you say you're keeping the covenant, but you're not. You're not at all. This is, this is really not good, right? And then they're also, though, not just being negative and saying, hey, bad job here. And they're not being encouraging and saying, if you stop, we can, you know, God is still going to make good on this. God is still going to work with you. But there's this almost this expansion that seems to be taking place in the, the, the prophetic writings. So here you go. This is Isaiah 2, the beginning of the chapter. The word of Isaiah, son of Amos concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised above the hills. All the nations shall stream to it. Many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, 
to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his path. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So that's extraordinary. I mean, they're going to go to receive teaching, right? They're going to take up the ways of the Lord, of the God of Jacob. I'm going to come forward, move forward a uh, number of chapters to 25. And this is, this is about, I mean, it's kind of references to the Messiah. You're going to hear strains and kind of echoes of the wedding at Cana and the water turned into wine with the, 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 the prominence of wine. And, but it, right off the bat, 25 verse 6, on this mountain, again, we're kind of got this idea of the mountain of the Lord. Same idea here. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples, not just Israel, for all peoples, everyone's included. A feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wines, of rich food filled with marrow, of well-aged wines strained clear. And he will destroy on this mountain the shroud that is cast over all peoples, the sheet that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. I've got two more, and they're, they're shorter. Um, Isaiah 42 and 49. Just a couple of verses here, uh, just, just to keep it short. Um, I mean, the whole thing bears, bears reading and maybe, yeah, and maybe as I go through and read more, maybe I'll get a greater sense of the answer to my question about, you know, how is it that the prophets seem to be almost expanding on the impact of the covenant? But I think it's what, it, what is going here. I'm going to hunch at an answer here. All right. I'm going to hunch at an answer that they're working through this relationship between the promise or ex- almost, if you like, expounding the relationship between the promise and the covenant. I wonder, I wonder what N.T. Wright would say about some of that stuff. Anyways, this is verses, these are verses, uh, um, this is verse 6 out of 42. I am the Lord, I have called you in righteousness. I have taken you by the hand and kept you. I have given a covenant to the people, a light to the nations, to open the eyes that are blind. Very interesting phraseology. I have given a covenant to the people, a light to the nations as though giving the covenant to all peoples, although we know it's just given to Israel. So again, this extension through Israel out to everyone. And finally, this is the same thing in verses in chapter 49, again, verse six, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the survivors of Israel. I will give you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And again, this idea of blessing here seems to be taking on, you know, in the last two that I read, seems to be taking on more than a blessing. It's, it's this fullness of even salvation, of, of everything, of, you know, salvation is right relationship with God, right? So it's this, uh, yeah, I don't know what more to say. I, I'm so very excited so- by this. <laughs> So sum up in as succinctly as you can, because I think I've lost track of the terms. Define one more time what the promise is and define what the covenant is, and then we'll call it good. Good. Well, I think the promise here is this very succinct section, Genesis 12, 1 to 3. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. This is the land of Canaan. I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So promise equals I will bless you, and 
everyone else. That's the promise. In and through you, yes. Okay. I will bless everyone else. Got the promise. Now what's the covenant? Well, the covenant, variously, you've got the Abrahamic... Or you have different covenants. Yeah, you've got the Abrahamic covenant. I I think we can just look at those two, right? I know that that there's a covenant with Noah, there's a covenant with the priests, there's a covenant with David, um, and they're they're about different things. But the major ones, I think the the, the looming, the biggest one, obviously, is, is with... Is it Sinai? Through Moses, not with Moses, but through Moses. And I believe that is starting... You know, starting the stipulations of that sort of start in Exodus 20, and they go all the way through, and then some bad things happen with the Israelites, and um, they come and make this golden calf, and Moses throws down the original kind of two tablets and goes back up and makes more. Um, but you really see that I think the the the, the kernel, if you like, of the uh, uh, the covenant in terms of its content and its orientation is Deuteronomy, and if I had to Put a, put a finger on it, I would say it's Deuteronomy 6 and Deuteronomy 7, but Deuteronomy is just jam-packed with some of this stuff. But in there, you're not seeing so much this idea of, you know, I will, I will bless the nations through you. It's more about, you know, even the closest thing that, that I, I, I'm reading in there is, you know, nations will borrow from you and you will borrow from no one. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, I will make your land fertile and good things will come to you. But even more, <laughs> there are the counter claims, if you like, against the Israelites, should they not follow through? And there's a lot about that. So promise really about this part that's distinct about the promise is other nations. And that's not as much in the covenant proper. But, you know, as we looked in Isaiah, there's a lot of this there. And it's almost like the covenant is being expanded on in the direction of the promise in these sections of Isaiah. Okay, I think I might need a few more lessons in this before I totally get it. <laughs> well, I think I, I still, yeah, it still still feels to me like we're splitting hairs to call one a promise and one a covenant. It just feels to me mm-hmm. like when you make a promise to someone, you make a promise. And when you make a covenant to someone, it's the same thing. You're promising that you'll do something. Well, okay. Uh, I, I, I guess I'm looking at terminology. That, that covenant terminology in terms of Abraham doesn't show up until the end of chapter 15. And it shows up after, you know, Abraham says to him, but he said, oh Lord, how am I to know that I shall possess it? How do I know that I'm, I'm going to possess this land, right? How do I know that you're going to make good on this? And that's when the very next part, you know, he being God says to him, being Abraham, bring me a heifer of three years old, etc. Bring me all these animals and cut them in half. And they will both pass and God passes through each side of these, right? And then this is the covenant. And then later on in 17, you've got the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision. And you've got God making these promises, right? So Uh, a covenant comes with a demonstration that the promise will be made good on? Yeah, I think so. Whereas the promise is more, I just, I promise that I'm going to do this. Whereas the covenant is, I promise to do this. And by the way, here's how you're going to know that I'm really going to do it. Yeah, yeah. And the covenant also has... um, you know, that has implications, right? You know, I will, kings shall come of you. Um, you shall be the ancestor of a multitude of nations, like, et cetera, et cetera. It's probably, I could probably say that a little bit better, but I, I'm not as, I'm skimming over this here. But yeah, and then when you get into like the, um, especially in Deuteronomy with the Sinai covenant through Moses, 
there are numerous stipulations, right? There's tons of stuff. The Levitical laws, the whole Leviticus is just packed with all these, you know, when this happens, you'll, you'll go about it in this way. If this should occur, you'll go about it in that way. You know, and it can, we shouldn't see these things as just sort of God's giving them these random laws that, you know, drop out of uh, the sky, but more that there are ways in which traditionally the ancient Eastern, Eastern cultures would treat situations where people injured other people, would treat situations where they stole, where they misrepresented, where they did that or that or that or that. And so the Israelites are already familiar with a lot of this. They've already got their own ways of doing things because they've adopted them from other cultures and then just from the culture that they're in, they've imbibed them. And yet what we're seeing in the Pentateuch and the Levitical laws is we're seeing a, um, similarities but some differences, some key differences in terms of fairness, in terms of equality. Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts or questions on this episode, so leave a comment at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash 75. We also invite you to join our private Facebook group. To receive an invitation, send an email to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com and tell us your biggest need or problem when it comes to Christianity. We'll get an invitation right out to you. Music on this podcast is made possible by Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Tune in next week for a new episode.